Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, I'm looking forward to this one. How are you, man? I'm doing very well, Conrad. How are you doing? Man, better than I deserve. I really enjoyed our deep dive last week. We got to take a look at a single Nitro, and it was a very important Nitro from 1996. Of course, it's when the NWO took over the outdoor show at Disney, and man, things were never quite the same. And now we're going to talk about maybe a not so great nitro or at least a little less historical of course back then it was all about the nwo and today we're going to examine the august 9th 1999 nitro that took place in boise idaho of all places but the reason we're covering it and the reason it's historic is because this is the first time we see hulk hogan back in the yellow and red before we sort of talk about all the storylines that night Tell me about Boise, Idaho. It was like a random place to run a show, or maybe it wasn't. How in the world did Boise wind up on the schedule? Well, we had Sturgis on the schedule following, you know, the next week. So it was, we were routed, you know, there was only so many places we could go and we were riding to Sturgis again. So Boise was the uh, selected venue and we rode from Boise all the way into Sturgis. So we're a few weeks removed from the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, and this is the go-home Nitro before Road Wild, as you just mentioned. And Meltzer's reporting at the time a few interesting things. First of all, quote, the plan is for Eric Bischoff to get the presidency of the company back and then go heel once again. As long as the booking is primarily for the egos of those doing the writing, the company is doomed to be playing catch-up. This feels like an opportunity to dump on old Dave, but let's pause that for a minute. Was this the original plan to have you regain the presidency and turn heel? You were sort of going to go back to what brought you to the dance, so to speak? Well, I mean, yes. Short answer, yes. Longer answer is it was there was never anything else considered. It was the plan from the very beginning before I was suspended. So it's not like, okay, Eric's suspended. Let's sit back and debate whether he should come back as a babyface manager or president or maybe not even have an on-camera role. There were no other options available. Um, it, it, it was the original intent from the, the, the time that I got suspended. So for Dave to make it seem like there was, you know, to imply, I guess, or infer that there was anything else being discussed is, is just not accurate. Let me ask you this. This is, um, famously right before, well, not right before we're a couple of months away from Vince Russo jumping ship here. Are you, how are you feeling about the overall state of the company, whether we're talking about ratings or merchandise or just revenues in general and creatively, are you feeling a little burnout? I'm talking about just your opinion, you as a human. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a really good point, Conrad, you know, to do a decent job talking about this particular episode, I think we do have to kind of go back and look at where everything was in in context, because we know that context is king, context is king, indeed it is. At this point, you know, 31 days from this particular episode, I was going to get sent home. I got sent home on September 10th, 1999 um, by Harvey Schiller. So, you know, we're, you know, we're only 30 days away from that, 31 days away from that or or so, whatever it is. Uh, So, yeah, it was it it was a miserable, miserable time for me. And it had been, you know, we've talked about this for a little bit 
or on a couple different shows, you know, by the middle of 98, I was beginning to feel the pressure. In August of 98, I had told my wife that I was going to resign because I was so um, disturbed at, at the direction that things were going. And I'm talking about above me now, um, not creatively, not financially, not talent issues, none of the above. I'm just talking about the general direction of, of Turner uh, and Time Warner. And, and, and the shift in upper management and the way the, the company was being operated and the pressure that was being put on WCW, cutting of budgets and all, just a whole you know, number of things that we've already touched on. I won't go into it again. So by this time, now we're talking about uh, – what's the – we're talking about August of 1999. That's right. I've, I've been going through it for a fucking year. So I had been banging my head on rocks and dealing with political issues and, you know, management just shifts and changes and, you know, the politicking inside of, of Turner Broadcasting and Time Warner was just – it's hard to explain if you've never been there, if you've never been through something like that. You know, people just won't appreciate it or understand it. But, it, but yeah, so by this time I was ready to just, I was ready to chuck it all. I was toast. Let me ask you, you know, we've never really talked about this before, but I've always been curious as the company starts to experience phenomenal growth under your hand, are you, are you getting raises along the way? No, no, my deal was my deal. And you know, I didn't make, I mean, I made good money at Turner. Don't get me wrong. Um, I made very, very good money, even by today's standards. Uh, so I, I don't want to imply that I wasn't making much. But compared to what I probably could have or should have been making had I negotiated a better deal for myself back in 96 and 97 when I had a tremendous amount of leverage and I probably could have, um, I, I was making a decent amount of money. But my deal was my deal. It was already in place. So there was no – you know, there were bonuses <clears throat> You know, if I, you know, reach certain thresholds and the, the way they were constructed, quite honestly, they were almost automatic, um, particularly when things were going well. So I was hitting my bonuses and I was getting, you know, some pretty substantial stock options, which at the time I didn't even know what the fuck they were. That's how naive I was. Um, but, um, you know, I was making good money, but there was no way that I could um, renegotiate my deal or try to position myself for anything more. Talk to me about the bonuses and how that would work. Is that based on uh, total revenue? Is that based on sellouts? Is that based on ratings? You know, there were there were probably three or four different bonuses in the agreement. Some of them were pay per view bonuses. Some of them were uh, you know EBITDA, you know, bonuses. You know, profit at the end of the year. Um, just different growth thresholds, and they were intentionally set fairly low so that it was it was an easy target to hit i think when i negotiated my last deal there you know harvey schiller you know and i harvey was a great guy i mean he was a fiercely political animal i mean fiercely political and by 98 and 99 even though i liked harvey and we got along really well on a person to person basis his head was so you know, focused on, you know, he wanted to become president of Turner Broadcasting. That right. was his goal. And with everything that was going on with AOL, Time Warner, he was in the, he was one of the, the leading candidates for that job. And that's all he cared about. 
quite honestly. Um, but we got along really well. And, you know, he structured my second, my last agreement in a way that, you know, my, I think my salary was somewhere around 500 or 600 grand a year. And then with bonuses, you know, it bumped me up quite a bit from there. So, uh, like I said, it was good money, but it, it was what it was. Well, you know, we've never really talked about that. And I know that's one of the things that a lot of our listeners enjoy that unlike Bruce, you'll actually talk about the money aspect. And when you mentioned bonuses, you know, I think a lot of people wonder, Hmm, well, they're a television company. How does that work? So I appreciate you sharing that. Let's talk about the news at the time. Uh, the plan for Arn Anderson was to return to the ring at the July 22nd thunder in Moline, Illinois. Although you know how WCW plans are, that's directly from the observer. Of course, it didn't end up happening. And of course, famously, Arn was forced to retire in August of 97. We got the famous my spot speech with Kurt Henning. And then of course the NWO spoof. Do you remember it ever even being discussed that he would come back at 99 and what would lead to a decision like that? Well, his injury, <laughs> his, you know, I, I think Arn wanted to come back. Arn was very young at the time. And like a lot of wrestlers, um, you know, he, he grew up at a very young age. I mean, his identity, his character, his livelihood, you know, was all based on his ability uh, to perform in the ring. And, you know, he had a severe neck injury that required surgery. There was nerve damage. I think it was to his left hand. I'm not sure if it was left hand or right hand. Um, some pretty severe nerve damage. And when we got the final word from the doctor that he was just never going to be able to wrestle again or his health would be um, – he would be severely at risk to, to become more affected by the surgery and, the, you know, the limited amount of paralysis he had in his hand than he already was. So it wasn't like – as Dave Meltzer put it, well, maybe we'll use them. Maybe we won't. It was okay. Arn, depending on, you know, what the doctor says, if, if he clears you, you're back. If he doesn't, you're not. It was that simple. Uh, and I know Dave likes to, or liked, I should say back then to couch things always in the negative and just always, you know, frame things as negatively as you possibly can with a smart ass little jerk off comments. But the fact was, you know, he had surgery, he came out, he went through rehab. His doctor said, it's not going to work, Arn, can't do it. And I made him an agent. That's what I was going to ask is, is what did you guys find for him to do? I mean, I'm sure he's still collecting a check, you know, for you because you were good like that, but he was contributing as an agent. How did you think he did as an agent? I think he did great. You know, he, he Arn Anderson, I think is one of the more underrated performers in probably the last three decades of the business, just, I mean, first of all, he could cut a promo like nobody else. There's very few people that could, that could hold a mic for Arn Anderson. Very few. You probably count them on one hand. If you really put them side by side, some of, you know, Arn, and he was, you know, Arn was never the star of the show. You know, he was always, you know, you always saw Arn with Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen. So he always had to share the stage with some other pretty eloquent speakers, by the way, and, and powerful promos. So Arn never really had, for any length of time, the spotlight to really do the kind of promos that should stand out to people. But if you go back and you look at some of the best of the best of Arn Anderson's promos, I don't know, man. Name me three people that are better than Arn Anderson. Yeah, yeah, his I, shit was I, believable. I mean, that's the thing that I always come back to is an Arn Anderson promo was believable. And to me, that's everything. 
you know, I don't care, you know, if you can rhyme your shit or how animated you can be or how funny you can be. I really, none of that matters to me as, as a producer and a fan. Uh, what matters to me is if you just make me believe you believe. And it's, it's no different than acting. You know, a great actor you know, allows you to forget what you're watching is acting, whether it's on a stage or whether it's on a big screen or whether you're watching Netflix on television. A really good actor sucks you into that character and into that story and makes you believe it. Uh, and, and Arn, I think, was one of, if not the best at it. Let's talk about politics. You've mentioned it a little bit, and now we're going to talk about some WCW politics because it's reported in The Observer here that Kevin Nash was losing some power backstage at this time, and allegedly you were being heavily influenced by Hulk Hogan, and Dusty is doing some of the writing. Now, of course, some of this could just be rumor and innuendo, but as you recall here in the, I don't know, late summer of 99, do you remember Kevin Nash maybe having some issues in the backstage? Because that is what sort of consumed the newsletters during the time. Well, it was true. And look, you know, oftentimes, you know, I know I get busted, you know, people say, oh, he's always blaming everything on anybody else. He never takes blame for anything. And that's not really true. I, I try as often as I can to take responsible responsibility for my shortcomings or the things that I actually had control over. And, you know, if I look back and and look at some of the bigger mistakes that I made uh, or, 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 or the bad judgment, you know, that I executed, I think it was, you know, putting talent in that position as, as a booker, as head of creative. I, I did it to Ric Flair and it just absolutely overwhelmed him because he's just not built for it um, psychologically and emotionally. And I don't know that anybody is quite frankly, it's a fucking horrible position to put talent in when you take, you know, you take one of your top stars who the company is focusing on and, and most of the stories, your A stories, your lead stories are, are centered around that individual. And then that same guy has to kind of determine the fate of all the people underneath them. It's a fucking horrible position to put somebody in. But, you know, I did it to Rick and, and that blew up. That was a disaster. I did it with Kevin Sullivan. That didn't really turn out much better. Um, and, and I did it with Kevin, you know, and, and Kevin, I asked Kevin to do me a favor. I was so fried. I was so overwhelmed by the internal politics from a corporate perspective and everything that was going on and the battles that I was fighting there that I just didn't have it. You know, I, I, I can't think of a more, a, a clearer way to say I was tapped out creatively. What I, the magic I had in 96 and, and, and I did, you know, 95, 90, you know, launching Nitro. There's a lot of great shit that I did and I was inspired and I felt creative and I loved every second of it. And I, it, 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 it couldn't have been more different for me by the middle of 1999. And I asked Kevin, you know, we were just as friends, you know, kind of off the record. He was in my office one day and, and I asked him, I, said, I mean, he could see it in my eyes. I mean, he knew I was fucking frazzled and fried. And, and I just asked him, man, would you just take this thing for a while? I just need to get away from the creative to, to have a fresh look at it and, and, or try and, you know, he didn't really want that spot because he knew it's such a thankless position and he knew it. 
but he did it. <clears throat> and and I'll to this day I appreciate it and and respect him for it because it, it he, he didn't get paid any more money. He he was all of a sudden, you know, the focus of a lot of heat and and a lot of bitching and moaning in a locker room where he, you know, was formerly <laughs> the guy doing the bitching and the moaning. Now they were all bitching and moaning about him. It's a thankless position. But it, it by the end of the summer, you know, going into this event, you know, he, he it wasn't working and we knew that. There was no, you know, again, Dave Jackoff Meltzer, of course, he's going to frame it like Eric Bischoff is under the influence of, you know, Dusty Rhodes and all Hogan. Bullshit. Just just quit being a jagoff and report the information and quit editorializing on shit like that. And I'd probably get along with him a lot better. That wasn't the case at all. The case was Dusty was there. He wanted to help. He he had a passion for WCW. It was his livelihood at that point. And Dusty and I were tight. You know, he we had a very, very strong and a very good relationship. And you know, Hulk was always there. Yes, yeah, so there was there was a lot of you know Hulk. Hulk had a lot of influence, um, depending on the situation, because of the nature of his agreement. But it was never you know Hulk pushing his agenda. You know, there were times when I did things that Hulk wanted to do that I questioned, that I look back on now and shake my head at. You know, Brutus the fucking barber beefcake as an example. You know, there was just a lot of things creatively that I didn't really agree with that I went along with because. Put yourself in my shoes. The man had a lot more experience than I did when it came to creative issues. I, I had only been involved in creative for a couple of years. I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself when it came to creative. There were some things I felt really strongly about, but there were things that I wasn't sure about. And I did rely on people that are that were around me. And, and to that extent, did they have influence on me? Sure. You know, some of their ideas were great. Some of their ideas were horseshit. Just like everybody else. Tell us uh, specifically, if you recall, and I know that that may be tough, but you've sort of said that, you know, here by late summer, we know it's not working with Kevin. Can you, can you point to something and say, you know, this was the moment or it, it, the, the mood, as you like to say, the tone and tenor of the locker room was this, what exactly wasn't working with Kevin Nash that would make you say, you know what, let's tap dusty for a minute. There was no one thing. There was no, you know, bolt of lightning. Right. There was no, you know, light switch that got turned on or off. It, it was just a combination of things. I think it was general frustration. Kevin was getting frustrated. Locker room was getting frustrated. Ratings were in the fucking tank. We were getting bitch slapped every Monday night. It was a horribly unpleasant place to be. And I think it was more of, you know, me realizing that I put Kevin in a horrible fucking spot and, and, you know, getting him out of that out of that spot so I could focus on him as a talent and just trying to get some help from Dusty. There is, you know, an old line of thinking that says that really a booker should be in place for like 18 months and then it's time to get out of the race car. Having done it and having seen, you know, the book needed to be moved around a little bit when you were running WCW, do you think that is a, a solid strategy that it, it does need to change every now and again, or somebody's going to burn out and it's just going to go to the shooter? I, you know, I, I can't disagree with it, but I, you know, if it was in the seventies and the eighties, maybe even in the early nineties, I would say, yeah, that's probably true. But by the mid nineties, late nineties, and certainly today, I wouldn't advocate that approach today. What I would advocate is, 
you know, certainly somebody, a head of creative that really, really understood the psychology of storytelling, that really understood the fundamentals of storytelling. And I'm not just talking about wrestling. Because that's the, the, you, you will never survive in in today's world. I guess the WWE can't because they're so big. They're you know they're impervious to some things. But you know if you want to succeed in the world of entertainment, I don't give a shit if it's music, if it's TV, if it's movies, whatever it is, you have to understand fundamental storytelling. And that's certainly true in wrestling. And I think having you know somebody that really understands not only the basic fundamentals of storytelling. But more importantly, or as importantly, the psychology of the wrestling audience, because it's different than the psychology of someone who watches a drama series or somebody that watches action movies or somebody that well, there's a lot of similarities. Don't get me wrong. There's parallels. You know, there are three X sectors, there's story arcs, you know, it's the hero's journey, all of those, you know, things that you would learn in, you know, the second day of a film writing class. But you have to be able to apply those basic tenets of great storytelling to that unique psychology and history that is the wrestling audience. Because the wrestling audience is different. They have really long memories. And their expectations are much different. It's a lot harder to, to get one over on a wrestling audience than it is to try something new um, uh, uh, you know, in a sitcom or in a dramatic series or even in a movie. Um, the audience will forgive you there. The audience is much less forgiving in wrestling in, in many respects, some respects. So my, 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 I mean, if I was looking at it today, I would want somebody looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at painterlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen you know, a young Pat Patterson uh, to perhaps, you know, and I say that just because I was with Pat and Bruce this past weekend in Minnesota, but somebody, you know, Pat really understands basic psychology. We talked for hours while we're in Minnesota about that. 
you know, somebody like a young Pat Patterson who really who really gets wrestling psychology, but have him surrounded by people that really understood traditional storytelling, because with the amount of television that people have to produce today, you know, I mean, I can't even count the number of hours that WWE produces. I'm not sure they can either anymore. Even when I was at this point in 1999, I think I was, you know, between two hours or three hours of Nitro and two hours of TBS. There's five hours of prime time right there. And on top of that, we had three or four syndicated shows and the WCW Saturday night show for two hours and the main event show for one hour. I mean, we're producing a ton of fucking television. And then by this time, we were taping Thunder and we were doubling those those Thunders up. So when we sat down to re- write Thunder, you weren't writing one two hour episode. You were writing four hours after you just got done writing you know, two hours of Nitro. It was such a ton of work that unless you have a team of people that really understands the process of making sure those stories and, and the continuity that needs to be there in those stories are communicated to everybody in production, talent, everywhere else. Um, I don't know how you could do it. So I, I wouldn't advocate, like I said, cycling people in and out just because the clock is ticking. But I would keep an eye out for people who, you know, as I did, you know, just kind of lost touch because they, they're burned out. I was. And it can happen. It was also reported in the Observer around this time that Goldberg had signed a renegotiated contract with a raise up to one and a half million dollars a year. And it's reported that the WWF was salivating that they could have had an opportunity to see Goldberg negotiate his way out of his current contract. And then eventually that would have freed up Austin versus Goldberg to the point that they even had like tentative plans that this might happen. Do you remember the negotiation process here with Goldberg in 99 in particular? Oh, yeah, I, (laughs) <laughs> yes, I do. I remember it painfully well, as a matter of fact. Is this when um, he enlisted the help of Hulk Hogan's agent and it made your life hell for a little while? Yeah. I mean, first of all, he was represented by Barry Bloom. And I, I don't need to go into how I felt uh, about Barry Bloom at that time. Um, he was the lowest form of life on the planet in, in my book. I just completely untrustworthy. And, you know, there was just so many things I didn't like about Barry. The, the fact that I actually had to deal with him was even more painful than, than, than the negotiation itself was the fact that, you know, he was on the other end of the phone half the time to, to, you know, make matters even worse, you know, and this is, you know, something I was not too happy about. Obviously, you know, I was disappointed in Hulk because it just created a bigger issue for me. But to have Henry Holmes, who knew, you know, Randy Savage's contract inside and out, he knew Hulk Hogan's contract inside out, you know, to have an attorney that has that much inside information about other high profile performance deals when you're negotiating with somebody like Bill Goldberg and Barry Bloom. Um, it just made it even worse than, than it would have been anyway. And yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was one of the more painful, when I look back at some of the most painful experiences I had in WCW, this was it. It was not only the politics of, of AOL Turner, Time Warner. It was not only the budget issues. It was not only the, you know, the competition was kicking our ass. I mean, not just beating us, but kicking our ass. Um, and then to have to deal with an issue like this, you know, 
I was pounding my head on hard, sharp objects on a regular basis and negotiating with Bill Goldberg, Henry Holmes, and Barry Bloom was a big part of it. You sort of expressed some strong feelings about Barry there. And I know um, Barry's still a figure in today's world of professional wrestling. Do you, has your opinion changed at all? I mean, do you still feel that same strongly, you know, that, that same sentiment towards Barry? No, Barry burned me. You know, I brought Barry into WCW because there were talent that, that felt like they needed representation but didn't know where to go. I trusted Barry. I expected Barry to work for the talent and, and to do what a good manager should. But it was under the agreement that he would never use that position in, in a way um, that would give him leverage with the WWF and play both ends against the middle. That was our deal. How, whether it was a good idea for me to do that or not, it probably, obviously it wasn't. Um, but he was a friend, like he was my manager for a while. He was, he got me a gig hosting, you know, entertainment tonight, <laughs> uh, in, in Hollywood at some point, at one point, um, him and Michael Braverman were both people that I considered, you know, good friends and I trusted. So I, I introduced him. I brought him into WCW to be the guy so that if a talent said, look, I really don't understand this contract. I need some, I need some help or I'd like to talk to somebody. And I, like I said, I expected Barry to be objective, but I didn't expect him to take that contract and go running over the WWF and see if he could do better over there and negotiate against me with it. And that's exactly what he did. And I'll never forget, you know, the last conversation we had, you know, I was, I was very, very clear with with him and how I felt about him and what I what I felt about what he did. You know, you just don't burn friends like that. If he would have come to me and said, look, I can't be in this position anymore. I've got to, you know, I've got to be able to represent other people. And so there's going to be times we're going to negotiate against each other. That's man to man shit. I could have dealt with that. Look me in the eye and tell me that. But don't go around my back and do it after you've given me your word and shaken my hand and told me that you wouldn't and do it. You know, that's, that's a bridge. You can't, you can't, you can't go back and recross that bridge. It's that's over for me at that point. Wow. That might be the highlight of the show. And we're just getting started. Let's talk about what Meltzer had to say about Dennis Rodman. He says that there was an out of court settlement to drop his lawsuit that was stemming from a lawsuit based on bash at the beach the prior year where he only quote unquote got 2.25 million and he felt that he'd been deceived in the contract negotiations of another 550,000 due to him. And the presumption is that his deal for road wild is the same one and a half million base plus percentage revenues above 3.9 million. So of course we're talking about pay-per-view revenue there. So chat me up here about what you remember about Dennis Rodman coming back and saying, at least this is what's reported in the dirt sheets. Hey, um, you guys owe me some more money, so let's make a deal. I don't recall that at all. There, there's, there was no lawsuit with Dennis Rodman. Um, there may have been an issue with Dennis. They, Dennis may have very well, like most people, wanted an accounting. He may have had a difficult time you know, accepting that accounting. And if you go back to this time, 97, 98, 99 even, um, the, the accounting for pay-per-views was freaking horrible. You have to understand how it works. Um, at the time, now again, I'm talking about at that time. You had DirecTV, you had Dish, you had Turner Home Satellite, and all of these pay-per-view companies relied on the local cable systems, Mon Pa local cable in you know nowhere, you know North Dakota, 
um, which service their little community, um, they're the ones that distributed to the pay-per-view, the pay-per-view to the local market. Well, by the time they took in the money and then they reported it upstream and then it finally got to us, typically we weren't getting full accounting for almost a year, probably longer after an actual pay-per-view took place. And that was a hard thing for talent to deal with. He didn't understand. And in their minds, it's like, well, wait a minute. We did the pay-per-view. People had to pay their money to get the pay-per-view. Where's my money? Right. They didn't They didn't understand, nor did they want to understand that the accounting process was a painful um, extended experience. So there was issues there, not only with Dennis, but with other people. But it never got to the point where there was any, you know, animosity or, you know, it wasn't a settlement. It was this. It wasn't that. It was okay. Let's figure it out because he had bonuses. You know, he was incentivized, like everybody else was, like Mike Tyson was. I'm sure. You know, I mean, there were people when you bring in celebrities, high profile celebrities. Dennis was at that point, um, certainly early on. Um, he did have incentives in his agreement. He probably wanted to see the accounting for it. I just cannot wait to talk about this. Meltzer wrote that kiss is receiving a half a million dollars to perform two songs on nitro on August 23rd. Plus Gene Simmons would introduce a new wrestler, the kiss demon, who's going to be portrayed by Dale Torberg, a uh, kid who grew up idolizing Gene Simmons. Of course, we know that there is a baseball connection with Dale. Uh, that I'm sure you might want to get into and, and we can talk more about kiss later if you'd like to, but share as much or as little as you'd like about the rumor and innuendo that you paid half a million fucking dollars for kiss to perform a song on nitro. Well, the deal with Gene, I was introduced to Gene through his manager at the time. Um, and actually through a guy uh, that I was that represented me at CA by the name of Jamie Waldron. There was a, just a little network of people that all knew each other. And I got word from Jamie that that Gene Simmons wanted to meet me next time I was in L.A. So I, I had you know, I knew I was going to be out in L.A. I was going out there probably every two or three weeks at that time for a few days at a time. So um, I made arrangements to to meet with Gene. Wasn't really sure what he wanted to talk about. I had no agenda at the time. And I got to – it was at the Beverly Hills Hilton on Rodeo Drive in, in a famous hotel, if, if you know that area. Um, and we had arranged to meet like around 3 in the afternoon or 4 in the afternoon because the bar, you know, the bar at the Beverly Hills Hilton, it's a very, very famous place. So all your, your major Hollywood stars, their agents, producers, directors, it starts filling up about 5 or 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. And it gets a little nutty. Um, and so, and that's before Harvey Weinstein shows up, right? Yeah, that's before. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I met I, I met Gene. I pulled up, went into the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I, I walked right into the bar. Uh, that's where he he wanted to meet me. And I walked in, and there was Gene sitting in the corner. And the Beverly Hills Hotel at that time had these really high backed, kind of expensive leather, really really cool looking stuff, you know, as you would imagine a hotel like that would. And I walked in and Gene had surrounded, you know, on three sides of him in this back corner booth was stacked from the top of the booth to the ceiling with every known piece of kiss merchandise at that time. I mean, it was like walking into, you know, a section of Toys R Us 
It really was. It was crazy. Dolls, guitars, every kind of action figure. I mean, anything and everything you could ever imagine as a Kiss tchotchke was stacked up against these walls. And there was Gene sitting by himself in this booth waiting for me. And, you know, we got along. We, we talked. And, you know, he explained to me that he had approached WWE, I believe. Uh, we didn't get into that conversation too much. But he had an idea. And his idea really was to create a KISS line of wrestling characters because he had an extensive licensing and merchandising business model. And I got really excited about that. Licensing and merchandising, as we've talked about it you know, on previous shows, was a, a real weak area, but it was something that was beginning to evolve for WCW. I think this year in 1999, earlier in the year, I think I did a deal with EA Sports got a $10 million guarantee with $5 million up front. Um, we were starting to really, you know, get some momentum and I wanted to build on that momentum. Gene Simmons had an amazing licensing and merchandising business. And as he explained to me, he kind of ran it himself. He oversaw it himself. He outsourced a lot of the manufacturing. He oversaw that himself. He didn't have a licensing agency per se running things for him. He was a hands-on guy. And we agree, you know, he, Gene doesn't drink. You know, he went on to explain a lot of things about him and how he operated his business. And, you know, he, he speaks six or seven different languages. Um, he's a brilliant guy. He really is. Um, he, 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 he invited me to his house the next day. And he wanted to show me his licensing and merchandising operation that he literally ran from his house. Now, at the time, he was building a really, really big house that you would expect Gene Simmons to live in, probably somewhere in the Hollywood Hills. I never saw the, the new house he was building at the time. But I went to the house that he was living in. And it was, you know, it was, you know, very expensive, nice home. But it was not the kind of place that you would think Gene Simmons would be living in. I got to his house in the morning and. His wife, I can't remember her name. She's famous in, in her own right. Shannon Tweed. Shannon Tweed. I got to his house about 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Shannon comes out, and she's in her she's in her robe. She just got up, you know, no makeup, hair messed up. You know, hey, hey, Eric, how are you? Good morning, Gene. You know, she starts cooking eggs while Gene and I are in the – I mean, it was as normal of a situation as you could possibly be in – given that I was in the room with one of the most eccentric performers, you know, in the music business. But, you know, Gene and I talked some more and he took me downstairs, showed me his operation, ran me through a couple of his numbers. And we, you know, we agreed to move forward. And it was, that was really the beginning of what was supposed to end up being not just let's play, pay Gene Simmons $500,000 to do a pay-per-view, but we were going to do a, a joint co-licensing agreement where WCW was going to draft or get the rub, as they like to say in the wrestling business, off Gene Simmons' toys and merchandise line, because we sure as fuck didn't have one, not, not as big as we needed and certainly not as big as his. And it was also going to be a part of what, in my mind, was going to be a pay-per-view on December 31st, 1999, called New Year's Evil. And, you know, Kiss playing and, you know, coming out and being a part of the show at the MGM Grand and all the stuff that we did was a part of a much bigger plan. So you can, you know, you can look at that and go, oh, man, I can't believe you paid him $500,000 to just do a, a, you know, sing a song on Nitro. That's, that wasn't the intent. The intent was a joint venture for licensing and merchandising that was going to lead to a massive pay-per-view at the Fiesta Bowl. You know, the more you explain some of this, the less you sound like a raging dumbass. 
I'm really glad we're doing this show together. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean I wasn't I wasn't a dumbass for doing it. It just there there's just more to it than you know. There's a method to the madness. I mean, you know, from the outside, it's easy to say, "Oh, it's a line item expense. It's half a million. What do we get out of that? What a fucking shit idea!" But the plan you just laid out. I'm not even a real big Kiss fan, but I could even get behind. Oh, he's going to do your New Year's Eve pay per view with him, and we're going to do it in Vegas, and it'll be a spectacle. And New Year's Eve in Vegas is a big thing. And well, no, let me let me let me let me clarify. They, I, I believe, Kiss performed at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. That's where they got paid to do their song, right? I think they did two songs, as a matter of fact. But the pay-per-view was going to be at the Fiesta Bowl right, right, right. My apologies. on de- December 31st, 1999. Because if you remember, you know, people thought, you know, oh, my God, it's, you know, the year 2000, you know, planes are going to fall out of the sky. Sure. Clocks are going to quit ticking. Computers are going to crash. It's going to be the end of the world. And I wanted to use that as a basis for that pay-per-view on Dece- because we were hurting for cash. We needed more revenue and throwing that pay-per-view out there with KISS and WCW, the pay-per-view format was going to be really simple. I had neg- started negotiating with the promoters and the organizers and, and people in, in um, Tempe, Arizona, and we were literally going to be there and do the pay-per-view out on the field. One half of the, inf- one half of the field was going to be a KISS concert, and there would have been a KISS stage on one end. In the end zone, and on the other end, it would have been WCW. We would have opened up with a Kiss song. We would have gone to our first match. End of the first match, go back to a Kiss song. When that song's over, go back to the first match. So it would have been kind of a a back-and-forth type of of an event with Kiss, which would have been a phenomenal pay-per-view on December 31st, 1999. Are you kidding me? It might have been – it's easy for me to say this now because I've had my Guyaki Urba Mate tea, and I'm all jacked up, but – if you really think about it, and I wasn't a KISS fan either, by the way, but there's no denying they have lots and lots of fans, sure. and they did back then especially. That pay-per-view, I think, would have been one of the best pay-per-views possibly from a revenue point of view that would have been done up until that point. Yeah, because you're leveraging not just that wrestling fans are going to buy it, but the KISS fans are. And you know that age group that they were appealing to, they were staying home. They were worried about the ATMs not working and shit like that the next day. So, well, and, and it was the nature again because, and I don't know what you would call December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, but there was, I mean, people were literally afraid that <clears throat> the world was never going to be the same Why once midnight. And I, I thought, man, to have a pay per view that is focusing on that. And the pay-per-view, by the way, the, you know, I never really got down to formatting it because like so many other things in 1999, it got fucked up by corporate and, and by employees that just didn't want to work over the holiday weekend. And the idea, though, was that on East Coast time, you know, we couldn't we, we couldn't have achieved what we wanted to achieve on all time zones. But we we're going to time things in such a way that on East Coast time – the the final three count, it would have been one, eleven fifty-eight, two, eleven fifty-nine, three, it's midnight. That was the way we wanted to time that pay-per-view. And it just would have been so freaking cool if we would have had the opportunity to try it. Well I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna use Dick Patrick for the referee, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. You know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you didn't think that you needed to use Nick Patrick because 
that would have been a close shave. Let's talk about you spending some more money though, Eric, because it's in the observer that you guys spent like $250,000 for kid rock, or at least you made an offer for 75,000 and kid rocks folks countered with 250, which they thought was absurd. And they were expecting a lower counter, but you guys agreed to it, or at least that's what's reported in yeah. Wade Keller's torch. What do you remember? I would, I, I would like to know how Wade Keller possibly knew what my offer was, and and maybe some you know jack off snitch rat, um, stooge, um, may have fed him that information, which may or may not have been accurate. Um, but how the fuck would Wade Keller know? how kid rocks management would be reacting to an offer or what their, their strategy was. So one of these days I'm going to sit down with these guys and pick out little clips like this and just go, how the fuck did you know what they were thinking? Did they call you Wade? (laughs) They go, Oh man, we got this offer from WCW. Let's call Wade Keller of the PW torch in Minneapolis. Let's share what we're thinking. I mean, some of the stuff is just so stupid. Um, Again, it it makes you know the read a little bit more interesting, which I guess is what they were trying to do. Right. But you know, I, we offered him whatever we offered him. You know, we paid him whatever we paid him. Two hundred fifty grand for someone like Kid Rock was not a ridiculous amount of money. You know, at that time, for what we needed and what we were getting. Man, would have been nice to be Kid Rock back then, because that's uh that's a hell of a payday for a fucking appearance for wcw uh, on august 15th you guys had sting nash the nitro girls and macho man randy savage on the cover of the tv guide tv guide man it's sort of one of those things that people talk about almost like vcrs because they're not really a thing anymore but how huge was it to be on the cover of tv guide back in this era it was huge it was huge and again putting all this in context for a company who, you know, two and three years before, we couldn't get attention in Hollywood or in mainstream media, no matter what we did, to be able to to all of a sudden be able to generate some of the publicity and some of the exposure that heretofore only WWE or WWF at the time was able to do. You know, we just didn't have the credibility. And to finally get to that point, which started to happen really in, in 98, but to finally get to that point and see it manifest was really, it was a big deal for us. It really was. Let's talk about Hulk Hogan. He makes an appearance on WCW live. And that's of course, something that's happening on the website for you guys. And he's really talking about stuff that you wouldn't imagine. Uh, he makes reference to the fact that a WWE executive once made a pass on him at a road trip. And he thought that, um, Paul White was going to be the guy he was going to pass the torch to, but he didn't think. Wait a minute. A WCW executive made a pass at Hulk Hogan? I thought I said WWF. Oh, well, maybe you did. And I I misunderstood you. I was going to say, I need to know who that is. Uh, If it's a WCW executive, I need to know who that is. He details um, smoking marijuana with Jesse Ventura who's in office at this time. He talks about the fact that the big show who's now with the WWF doesn't have the work ethic for him to pass the torch to him. So it's going to be sting or Goldberg. He says that master P was a flop and even his kids and their friends knew that master P wasn't any good. 
Uh, he talked about the fact that WCW needs more clean finishes and no more mystery theater. And that Rodman had been doing too much partying. So he didn't really have high hopes for him this time says he was okay the first time, but not the second time. I mean, it's, um, it's sort of uncharacteristic for Hulk Hogan to just speak so freely here. What'd you make of his WCW live appearance or did you even care? No, I did care. And it was out of character for Hulk. And I think, you know, this is like the, this is like early internet, you know, and this was, this was another, not to go off on a tangent, but this was another thing about 1999 that just drove me absolutely batshit. If, if you go back and look, I mean, cause I was getting, you know, I was hearing it from people that I knew that worked in WWE, um, you know, WWE, I think it was around 97, 98 in particular, they started investing millions of dollars in what has gone on to become a major part of their, their revenue stream, you know, WWE.com or WWF.com at the time and, and what it's become. And we knew, you know, the internet was new. I'm not suggesting that I had a vision and I knew that we had, you know, to invest a lot of time and money in it, but you know, it was the era of the internet, you know, in the internet bubble that, that it became. So everybody, nobody knew what it was or how big it was going to get, but everybody knew they had to be in it. That's why it became a bubble. And I was no different. I knew that we had to invest in the internet, but at the time, if you were an employee of, of, of WCW, the company wouldn't even buy you a fucking computer. You had to use your own. If your company computer crashed or it just was old, you couldn't spend the money to go buy a new one. When I went to Turner Broadcasting, I said, we need to have an internet initiative. We need to have our footprint. Uh, I couldn't hire outside the company. There was no, and there was nobody in WCW that had a fucking clue. They couldn't hit their ass with both hands. I was probably as knowledgeable of the internet as anybody else was. And I, and I'm, I'm, and I wasn't. So it was, it was, and to not be able to hire the best and the brightest and have the, the money to be able to do what I knew we needed to do meant that the, and by the way, the only people that I could hire because there was a hiring freeze was somebody that was about to be fired from another division within Turner Broadcasting. Wow. So in other words, if there was somebody over at Turner Sports that Human Resources knew was on their way out, they would – because in, in Turner at that time, you know, unless you murdered somebody in the fucking elevator, you weren't getting fired if, if you were an employee. It's just – it was the culture. It was what it was. And if, if human resources knew you were on your way out and they were going through the process and there was a job opening in WCW, well, you could either you know get terminated or we can transfer you over to WCW. That was the kind of staffing opportunities that I had. So while WWF at the time was building up their internet, I got somebody else's disgruntled employee who really didn't want to come to WCW anyway. It's just that that was the only thing that was available. That That's what we had to work with. So the WCW Live initiative sucked as a result. We couldn't bring in anybody that understood what they're doing. We couldn't bring in anybody that had a vision. <coughs> At best, they were copying what they thought other people were doing. And I think what Hulk did, you know, because of the way it was explained to him, is, you know, he, he was doing, as you laid it out to me, you know, more of a shoot interview yeah. as opposed to what we would do on television. Well, that would have been 
would that have been Bob Ryder saying now, now Terry, if we can get you to shoot a little bit, it would be good for us. I don't think it would have been Bob. Um, there were, there were other people involved with the initiative. There were actually Turner employees at the time. I don't think it would have been Bob. Bob may have been a part of it, but I don't think it was just Bob. And I think it was Terry trying to trying his best because we're all getting the shit kicked out of us. He felt it. I felt it. All the rest of the talent felt it. We were all getting our, just getting our asses kicked. And it was, there was desperation in the air. We were trying just about anything. And I think Terry, you know, in particular, you know, with some of the comments that you just relate to me, I, I don't remember hearing them, but I, as you relay them to me, they, they sound familiar to me. You know, some of those comments about clean finishes. Well, that's where people were talking about in the internet. Fuck, I've been hearing that on the inter- in the dirt sheets. I've been hearing that in the dirt sheets since 1987 when I went to work for Vern. That was nothing new. That was kind of common commentary, you know, each and every week in your favorite dirt sheet. Um, you know, his comments about Rodman surprised me. Um, he was right about Paul White. <laughs> by the way, it's why I didn't mind when, you know, Paul White came to me and said WWE offered him a million dollars a year for 10 years. It was kind of like, dude, you need to take that. <laughs> you need to go now. <laughs> Let me give you a ride to the airport. Um, so, I mean, that was then. Paul's obviously matured. Paul was very young at the time and was going through a lot of other stuff. But um, Paul's clearly, you know, going on to become somebody, you know, noteworthy in the industry. But at that time, Man, he just wasn't putting a lot into it. Um, so the comments were accurate, uh, but it was it was very uncharacteristic for Hulk, no doubt about it. Let's talk about uh, the Observer again. It's written here that Disco Inferno was talking about creative, where he would take a bump on his head and then do an amnesia gimmick, where he considers himself one of the more established stars, like a Hulk Hogan or a Randy Savage. We've heard Disco's name associated with some wild and crazy ideas. Do you remember the amnesia gimmick being presented? Yeah, it was a comedy thing, you know, and Disco would have been perfect for it. Right. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the middle of that creative. It wasn't my idea. But as you read this back to me, it's, it was perfect for Disco. Sure. I don't think any, I don't think there's anybody better to this day to pull off a, 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 a gimmick like that for a comedy spot because we needed comedy. There's always room for comedy and wrestling. And, you know, it's not like anybody was taking disco real seriously. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, David Finley. He suffers a broken leg and severs tendons in his leg on July 25th in Jackson, Mississippi, a table slices through part of his leg to the point that the actual bone is visible. He's bleeding like crazy. He undergoes surgery and people are saying this might be it for him. What do you remember about Finley's surgery? Of course, this wound up not being the end for him, but it was a spot where everyone was talking about it. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the match, I believe it was with Brian Nobbs. Um, you know, a typical hardcore match. It happened obviously outside of the ring. Uh, and he went through the table on a sharp edge of the table, um, tore him up, as you described. Um, I liked Fit a lot, still do to this day, but I had a lot of respect for Fit. I, you know, again, Steve Regal, you know, Fit Finley, they came from an era or a wrestling culture, uh, psychology from from a psychology perspective that I identified with. 
It was grounded in reality and believability. It wasn't as flashy as, as American audiences were accustomed to. But again, at that time, 98, 97, 98, 99, we were working really hard to establish as strong a presence in the UK as we possibly could because we didn't have a strong presence over there. We didn't have a strong TV. We didn't have strong promotional partners over there. And we were trying to improve on that. And that's why Fit Fit was a part of the roster initially. But um, I remember the incident. I remember seeing him, I believe, a week or two weeks after the incident. He came to uh, he came to a television taping. I think we were on a plane together, and we talked for you know twenty minutes or a half hour about it. And at the time, he wasn't sure he was going to be able to wrestle again. Well, thankfully, he was uh, he was not done. Let's do talk about the new WCW contracts would call for a drop in pay if a wrestler was injured and unable to return after thirty days, and the old contracts called for a drop in pay to be put into effect after ninety days. Uh, why the change here? Did you feel like you had some serial abusers at the time? Yeah, that was a Diana Myers, Nick Lambros, uh, initiative. Harvey Schiller was involved in that. And, and as, as was I, but it was originally, you know, Diana Myers was the catalyst for that because she was involved with dealing with it on a daily basis. Diana Myers worked in, she was an attorney who worked in the WCW offices, but she reported to Turner legal. So, you know, she was doing her job and and wanted to make that change. And it got signed off on by Turner Legal, which means we didn't get the vote. <laughs> That's just the way it was going to be. Let's talk a little bit about a nice thing that happened in The Observer. I'm not sure if you're going to believe this. Meltzer had some really nice things to say about you on the August 9th issue. He says that you were being considered for The Observer Hall of Fame. Oh my God. I, I wish I would have known that was voted on by the readers. And he said of you, he got some consideration from people last year and he probably is more responsible than Vince McMahon for creating the popularity boom of the business over the past three years. But plenty of promoters have had two or three great year runs. And the key for a promoter to make this list is 10 or 20 years of consistent, successful promoting Bischoff to me despite his initial success and the doors that have been opened to wrestlers isn't looking very good these days. And even if he was needs a year more years, more of success to stand the test of time. I mean, that's probably a fair criticism. I mean, you were on fire in 95, certainly 96 and seven and, and, and eight was a record year, but by 99, it did start to feel like the wheels were coming off. What say you fair assessment by Meltzer here? Yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, 99 was a fucking horrible year and you wouldn't, you didn't have to be a, a, you know, an MBA, you know, Harvard MBA to figure that out. You know, everybody knew it. So yeah, I would have been, I would have been shocked if you would have said anything other than that. Of course you didn't get voted in. You got 13 votes, which is 20%. Jim Ross was the only American that was voted in Jushin Liger, the great Muda, uh, Lioness Asuka uh, were voted in. And, um, anyway, I guess we should talk about Raven. Raven's going to be on this nitro. We're going to cover it in just a minute. Uh, but he was interviewed on a website and he explained that his contract expired in 10 months and that there isn't anyone he'd rather work for than Paul Heyman. And we know, I guess we'll talk about this some other time, how Raven's 
run with WCW comes to an end because we're not that far from it. But chat me up when you see that written in the newsletter or online, rather, is that when you start to sort of think, well, fuck it, I'm just going to offer him his release? It wasn't that. It, it wasn't like that. That interview was the catalyst, but things, you know, he was a miserable, depressing, dark. He was just miserable. <laughs> I, mean, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't like, I, I used to, you know, I, I try to avoid him when I, when I'd be in the arena. So I just didn't want to look at him. I mean, he just, you could be in a great mood. <laughs> you could, you're going to be having the best day of your life. And you'd look it over at, at that miserable guy and he just, he'd take you down three notches. He wasn't contributing much. I didn't dig his character. I knew other people did, you know, and I got to be careful when I say this shit because I know, you know, he had a lot of fans. It's not like I, I didn't value him. It's just, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me. So he, he had his position in my opinion, he wasn't going to get any bigger position and he probably knew that and he was miserable and I was miserable looking at him being miserable. So I really didn't care one way or the other. Wow. I can't wait till we do a Raven episode long form. Uh, we just did. It's about as long as he's worth. <laughs> God, what else is there to talk about? Johnny uh, Polo. I love you for that. Talk to me a little bit about bonuses for house shows. Uh, it's written in the observer that guys are starting to get paid bonuses based on their performance and their position in the cards for the house shows. And it's not considerable money, but it does range from $150 to a $500 bonus. That feels very bill Watts. What made you go to a, a bonus system for house shows? I think it was there was an initiative or, or a thought process. I should say it wasn't even an initiative. There was a thought process that was beginning to kind of mature in that we wanted to gradually create incentives in our agreements, um, eliminate, as we pointed out, you know, the kind of extended downtime that talent could take advantage of because they did. It's obvious. It was obvious to to us when it was happening, but when you've got talent that comes in with a doctor's note and says you can't wrestle, um, there's nothing you can do about it. You, you can't force them to do it. You can't force them to go see a different doctor. You can't challenge them on it because if if they were and they were to get hurt, you know the, the liability would have been through the roof. So you know, risk management said Turner Risk Management, and rightfully so. I, I don't want to mean to imply that they were too too conservative. But if a guy came in and with a doctor's note, he had a doctor's note. The only thing that we could do is shorten that, that time frame up for how long we had to pay them. On the flip side of that, as probably perceived to be kind of a, an adverse situation, we wanted to offer something that was a little bit more positive. And it was really the beginning of our attempt to create a few more incentives and less locked-in type of guarantee. Let's talk about what used to be considered a locked in guarantee. And that's that Ric Flair would put you over on the August 9th nitro. Allegedly Meltzer reports that Flair misses here claiming a uh, back injury that he suffered in Japan, but Meltzer sort of freestyling that it may be because he was asked to put over Shane Douglas. Allegedly Flair had told his friends that he was more than willing to lose to Benoit or Kidman, but that Douglas hadn't gotten over, was drawing poor ratings, and didn't deserve it. Now, that's not normal for Flair, at least if you believe what's in the newsletters. 
but you can't help but wonder, is this Rick thinking maybe Bischoff's trying to humiliate me since this dude's been out here calling me out, shitting on me forever. I'm not just going to lose to him on nitro chat me up. What do you remember about Rick? No showing. And did you think at the time it had anything to do with creative? I, I do remember it. I, I look with Rick at that time, he and I still had, you know, we had patched up some of our differences, most of them. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, we get along fine, but I, you know, my guess is, um, I'm really careful here when I talk about Rick and I hope you can understand that. And it's just out of respect for our friendship that we have now and, and for him as a person. Um, but Rick could be difficult when still, still can. he, he, when he felt that he wasn't being respected, um, he could get very emotional. And he would make decisions when he was emotional. So, you know, w- when I got word that he wasn't going to be able to make the shot and he had a bad back again, you know, somebody says he got hurt in Japan and he's got a doctor that says he's got a hurt back. What are you going to do? Right. You know, did I doubt it? Sure. Given, given the nature of our relationship, did it mean that I was right? No. You know, so I'll never know. Only Ric Flair knows. But it was certainly, you know, a thought. <laughs> given the nature of the relationship and everything else and the heat, as you pointed out between he and and Shane. All right. So let's talk about the actual show. Um, this is a show where we see Tony Schiavone return to the play by play booth. And as a reminder, because we've been all over the place, sort of setting the stage, we're specifically covering the August 9th nitro from 1999. It's the go home edition for that year's road wild. Um, there's a sellout here, 7,171 fans. So while we say the sky is falling, there's a $141,000 gate, even if we are in fucking Boise, but Shivani is back at the booth and he'd been gone for a while. And some of the wrestlers were maybe not in favor of it, or at least that's what Wade Keller would report. A lot of those guys felt like Scott Hudson was doing a better job. And they felt like there was no real logical explanation for Shivani's three week hiatus. And it's reported in the newsletters that that hiatus is really because you wanted him to just take some time off and get recharged and sort of hit the reset button. Chat me up about what really happened with Shivani and whether or not some of the boys were sort of pro Scott Hudson in his absence. It was true. Tony, like we all did, needed some time off. Tony wasn't just announcing. Tony was doing a lot of other things in the office. Tony was a producer. Tony worked his ass off. He really, really did. And he was burnt. And he was feeling the same kind of pressure that all of us were. Um, And it was obvious. could see it in him. could hear it in his voice. And he did need some time off. Just really simple. Um, You know, Wade Keller's assessment, you know, some of the boys, um, again, stooges, snitches, whatever, or, or maybe he just was making it up. I don't know. Um, but I, I never got that impression. I mean, Tony was genuinely liked by maybe not everybody, but if not everybody, damn close. Tony didn't have any heat with anybody. Um <laughs> So, to, you know, to suspect that or to, to, to suggest that the locker room was really surprised or unhappy, I think was 
you know, probably Wade getting out over his editorial skis. Um, you know, Scott Hudson, I hired Scott Hudson. I like Scott Hudson. Uh, but Scott Hudson, I, in, in, in some respects, I thought Scott may have been, and again, I'm going to be careful what I'm saying here because people will hear what they want to hear when I say these things. I hired Scott Hudson because I thought he was a great announcer. In some respects, I thought that Scott Hudson was a better announcer than, than Tony. In in the way he covered action, <clears throat> there was a little bit more passion and a little less matter of fact in their styles. And it was really styles. It wasn't – one wasn't better than the other. They were just different from each other. And there was elements of Scott Hudson's announcing that I actually preferred in some cases. However, Scott just didn't. I didn't want to say, look, I mean, he's a good looking guy. You know, I don't want to go. I don't want to say he had a radio face because that wasn't the case. But there was something about Scott on camera that just didn't come to life. He was he, he was he had a great voice. He did a great play by play. He was serious. He knew how to tell a story. He knew how to get talent over. He knew how to do a lot of things great. But when the camera was on him, that it that charisma, there was just not enough charisma there. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, Tony Schiavone was, you know, the most charismatic son of a gun either. Um, but he had the right vibe. He had the right combination. Uh, and it worked. So it was the reason why I, I wanted Tony back in that spot. But I was the one that hired Scott Hudson. I think, you know, Keller's affinity for Scott was, you know, Scott was originally a, a dirt sheet writer. That's where I hired him from. So I'm sure he and Wade were, you know, probably buddies, which would, in my guess, I'm not accusing Wade of skewing his writing, um, because, you know, for his friend. But I wouldn't be surprised either because that's typically the way they did shit. Just so you know, when you uh, first said that and you said you needed to be careful, I immediately texted Tony Schiavone that you said Scott Hudson was a better announcer. And then I texted him that you were not, that you said he wasn't charismatic. And Tony responded, tell Eric, I said, go fuck yourself. So at least <laughs> thanks, Conrad. At least now, and I'm going to have to try to get Tony to listen to the show to hear the entire comments in context because context is fucking king, but he won't because he's a busy guy and he's doing baseball. And now he's going to run around fucking Atlanta thinking that I'm burying him on my podcast when it is exactly the fucking opposite. I was putting him over, but of course you got to stir this shit up because you get a kick out of it. So let's talk about the show, man. They announced that sting had given WCW control, uh, back to WCW and now dusty Rhodes is in charge of the championship committee and JJ Dillon was put in charge of the executive committee. So there's a bit of a power struggle here. Catch everybody up on the storyline. It's a fucking mess. <laughs> Why would you have a championship committee and an executive committee? Yeah, the fuck is that? Well, the first committee talks about the second committee and then there's a meeting committee about the committees from the first two. And you know where we got that idea from? That's that was like Turner. That's how Turner was operating by that point. It was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have um, a steering committee. That's what they call them, a steering committee. Never fucking understood that. Well, I mean, I guess I do. 
You're going to get a bunch of people, you know, mid-level executives. They're going to sit around a room and they're going to talk about a subject and decide which direction they want to go. And then once the steering committee was done, it would go to another committee who would analyze the steering committee's decision. And then once that analysis was done, it would go to another committee to decide what, if anything, they should do. By this time, the whole fucking situation was so confusing and diluted and watered down. The last committee went, I don't know, let's just table that for now. So that's probably where that idea came from. We probably stole it from the Turner Executive Committee protocol. Well, I, I can't wait to hear who you stole this from. We've got Raven coming out with Vampiro, and they're followed by the Insane Clown Posse, and they're going to take on Lash LaRue, Norman Smiley, and Prince Ikea. And this is the opening match. Now, Raven is not actually wrestling. He's just there on the outside. The three guys wrestling in the match. Looking miserable. Look, looking fucking miserable. Isn't that the Looking idea, like though? he wanted to slit his own wrist and jump off a building. But I think that's sort of the character, is it not? Yeah. Un unfortunately, it was too much of a shoot character. So we've got Vampiro wrestling with the insane fucking clown posse. Uh, ICP of course had been in the WWE a year prior. They have a uh, cult following to say the least, but I'm curious how in the world did they wind up here on nitro? I have no idea. I can't even make shit up about this. You know I mean? I wish I could, I wish I was fast enough, you know, on my feet to, to put this heat on somebody else, you know, at the end of the day, I approved it. It wouldn't have happened if I didn't. You know, who the fuck convinced me that this was a good idea? I, I, you know, I wish I could think of that person so I could honestly put the heat on them, but I can't. Let me just tell you, and I'm going to get a ton of heat for this. I loved it. I loved it as a kid. I didn't hate it now. I was an insane clown posse fan as a kid for <laughs> sure. I love the Great Malenko album. Uh, Eric, what was your favorite song on the uh, Great Malenko album? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Look, nothing against them. I mean, look, at the time, they were kind of a thing. You know, if you look, you go back and look at some of the stuff I was doing, you know, Dennis Rodman, Kiss, you know, Gene Simmons, um, Insane Clown Posse, you know, there was a lot of things that we were, you know, Kid Rock. Um, there were a lot of things that we were doing to try to get the attention of an audience other than the audience we already had. Yeah, you, know, you produce a show, especially a wrestling show. You know, you have two choices. You can keep preaching to the same choir, especially the one that's leaving, um, and hope that they come back, <laughs> or you can go out and and look look for other audience to try to preach to and and use to build your audience. And that's what we were doing. And it's nothing against Insane Clown Posse or or even you know Raven and and, and the Filthy Animals as they you know came to be known. But the fact is that, that that was just a presentation of professional wrestling that just was antithetical to everything that I believed in. It was just the opposite of everything I liked. But that doesn't mean it was a bad idea or that it was wrong, even though it was distasteful to me. Because, again, I was, I've always been a guy that believed in characters and story and, and not, you know, the fucking insane clown car, you know, the clown car. You know, where everybody looks like something out of a horror movie. I just didn't relate to it, but I knew other people did like you, well, as a matter of fact. Here's the thing though. Like 
you know, that these guys have an affinity for, you know, a trunk full of Fago and a car full of fat bitches. And that feels like something you'd be into. Like, I think you're just misunderstanding the guys here, but they like those things. You guys have similar tastes. You know, Fago is a really, really popular soft drink in Detroit as a kid growing up. So when you th- now you throw in the Fago, I didn't know the Fago because, you know, I'm, yeah, I wasn't an insane clown posse fan. But now that you're talking about fat chicks and Fago, I probably didn't give them enough credit. And I feel really bad about that. So let's talk about the finish of the match. You watched the match probably for the first time in almost 20 years. Violent J busts out a moonsault at the end of this. When he started to, I didn't remember this happening, but when I see him climbing the turnbuckles today, I'm thinking this fucker's not fixing to do a moonsault. And he does. What'd you think? I thought they were crazy and they were crazy, but they also loved wrestling. You know, they weren't, you know, and I'll give them credit for this. They weren't just showing up and, and, and collecting a paycheck. Yeah. They brought their crazy shit with them, but that's why they were there. And they knew that, but they also loved wrestling and they didn't, you know, they wanted to be recognized. I think as guys that were, could actually deliver in the ring beyond just being the characters that they were. Uh, we should also mention here that, uh, dusty is laying down the law in the back to Douglas Malenko, Benoit and Saturn who were complaining that Ric Flair was holding them back. David Flair and Tori Wilson are walking by and David yells at dusty for running down Rick. And then Benoit puts David in the crossface. And Dusty makes a title match for later in the show. Uh, what'd you think about booking David with Dusty here? It's sort of an interesting little twist, right? It is. It's a family history. It's it's that legacy that, you know, wrestling fans, particularly WCW fans, you know, Dusty and Flair, everybody knew about it. You know, David coming up. It was, you know, it made sense at the time. You didn't like it, though. I could tell from the tone of your No, it, you know what? It's not that I didn't like the idea, but the execution wasn't that great. David wasn't ready for that spot. It was really what I really feel, quite honestly, is horseshit for putting David in that spot because he wasn't ready. He got rushed into it. He wasn't physically ready. He wasn't mentally ready. And he, he got thrown into it. another impossible situation. He's the son of Ric Flair for crying out loud. And rather than giving him time to mature and season and really find his character, Right off the bat, he's tossed into something that he wasn't prepared for, and I feel bad about that. By the way, he has a tremendous attitude about all of it. I mean, he jokes about how he did wrestling backwards. You know, normally you start in the armories and you work your way up to Monday nights, and he started on Monday nights and worked his way into the armories. So he has a good sense of humor about it, and he's doing well outside of wrestling now. Let's talk about uh, what Meltzer wrote here. He says that Kurt Henning, who was bothered this past week by a bad knee, which is why he didn't wrestle, is back here and he's taking on Barry Windham to beat the public enemy. And Henning is getting super over with the rap is crap entrance music. So what do they do? They give him new entrance music. That'll never get over. Now, of course, famously, this was a part of the West Texas rednecks and you guys are sort of moving along here and we're on the heels of his feud with masterpiece, no limit soldiers. The West Texas rednecks thing was getting over. We'll talk about it another time in long form. I'm sure. But why the decision to pull it away here? It does feel like you're taking away the thing that's helping him get over. Yeah, there was uh, there was some blowback um, internally from Turner Corporate standards and practices um, about the implied racial oh, undertones. Okay. 
You know, so you know what's it, funny is it wasn't, it, it, you know, I, I'm, you know, there's, we had to react to what we had to react to. We didn't, we didn't get to vote. You know, it's, it's funny that all these years later, like that literally never crossed my mind to me. It was just such a silly wrestling thing that I never considered that somebody may have looked at that differently, but either way, uh, how disappointed was, uh, was Kurt when he gets the news that, Hey man, uh, we got to take this away. I think he was really disappointed because it was a, I mean, it was a clay, you know, Kurt Hennig and I saw Larry the Axe this past weekend when I was in Minnesota. And by the way, I just got to say hi to Larry. And it was so great to see him. And I saw Baron Von Roschke, two guys that I grew up watching as a wrestling fan before I ever dreamt that I'd even be in the wrestling business. And I got to talk to Larry just a little bit. But, you know, Larry, excuse me, Kurt was such a massive country music fan. I mean, he loved Merle Haggard. He loved Waylon Jennings. Loved it. I mean, didn't just like it, loved it. And it was a perfect gimmick for him. And Kurt was such an amazing performer anyway. Even if he wasn't a huge country music fan, he could have played that part probably as well or better than anybody anyway. But the fact that he was just made it ideal for him. So, of course, he was disappointed. Next up, we've got Mona, who's the former Miss Madness and the future Molly Holly beat Little Genie. And uh, Brandy Alexander does a run in, but Mona clotheslines her. As a reminder, Mona came into WCW as Miss Madness, one of Randy Savage's valets, along with Medusa and Gorgeous George. But Savage wound up firing both her and Medusa from the stable. We haven't talked a lot about the future Molly Holly. What can you tell us about Miss Madness and that character? She was there for a short period of time, very quiet, um, very professional. Um, very green at the time. Uh, there's really not much more to talk about. You know, she, she wasn't ever intended to be kind of a long-term player. There was no real initiative to create a woman's division like we see today in WWE. That wasn't on anybody's horizon, including the WWE's really at the time, other than the divas, which was more, you know, sexual eye candy. Um, so she was just there. I mean, it was a, it was a temporary role and she filled it well and she was a pro and she was great to be around. So next up, we see a clean shaven Hulk Hogan backstage when his son, Nicholas asked him to wear his red and yellow. And then Rick Steiner and Sid attack Hulk Hogan. Of course, we're on the heels of Hulk Hogan being attacked the prior week after he hits Rick Steiner with a chair. There's a big uh, to do with him and Nash and Hogan winds up getting power bombed through the announce table. Chat me up. What, why did you guys sort of hit the reset button and have him go back to yellow and red? And how critical was a kid asking him to wear it to the story? I think when the decision was made for Hulk to go back to red and yellow and be that baby face character, I think from a storytelling point of view, the idea of your son, you know, coming to you and say, daddy, please turn your life around, go back to the Hulk Hogan. We all knew, I think it just, it, it, it struck a chord, at least on paper and, and at least made it make a little bit of sense. So it wasn't just a random act of character change. Um, probably no more, no less than that. Next up, we've got Goldberg and Sting coming out, and there's going to be a challenge for a six-man later in the show. Hogan's also going to challenge Nash and wants to add a loser-must-retire stipulation to Road Wild. 
And Meltzer speculating that the general belief is that Nash will lose, take a couple of months off and then come back with Scott Hall as the outsiders. Um, was that ever, ever discussed as far as you know, about maybe a reunion? Yeah. There, I mean, it, what, there was a lot of things being discussed at that time. We had long since abandoned, you know, any sense of real <clears throat> long-term planning. And when I say long-term planning, you know, in WCW and probably even to this day in WWE, long-term planning is considered to be about 90 days, maybe less. Uh, but by this point, things are in such a fucking disarray and we were grasping at straws. We were, I mean, any good idea on any given day, you know, could go from, you know, the back of the line all the way up to the front of the class. Um, so it had been discussed. I don't recall for sure whether the, the idea was for, you know, Kevin to go away. But given the scenario that you described, it would probably make sense. Um, he would probably need to go away had he lost, given that stipulation, which I fucking hate, by the way, as you read it to me. And as I saw it on time, I just hate that kind of stipulation. Nobody believes it anyway. Nobody believed it then. Nobody's going to believe it now. Um, everybody knows you're going to come back. So it was a, another horrible idea that I signed off on, but it was a horrible idea. Well, not a horrible idea is having Chris Benoit beat David Flair to win the United States title. He does so after about four minutes with a diving headbutt. Uh, lots of silliness here. We've got DDP attacking Benoit after Benoit challenges to a no DQ title match at Road Wild. And there you go. We're set up here. Savage does an interview the prior Thursday on Thunder. Savage had promised to reveal who drove the Hummer and introduce a new bodyguard on Nitro now that Sid is with Nash. He did neither, uh, nor were they ever brought up. Um, silly. Nobody knew. Nobody thought about it. It was just like, hey, remember what I said? I just said it three, two or three minutes ago. You could just throw out a random fucking idea from the back of the room. And all of a sudden you're standing in front of the line. and All right, good. Let's do that. That's, that is the, that was the state of mind. Um, in the situation in WCW at the time. And because nobody had ever thought through it, nobody, nobody, <laughs> including me, by the way, nobody went, Hey, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. If he's going to say that, who's it going to be? Nobody even raised their hand to ask the question. So of course it was one of those, Oh, that's a cool moment. We've created some mystery. Great. We got the audience asking questions that they're going to be asking for 25 motherfucking years. There's, Still asking me that question. Who drove the Hummer Bischoff? Now they're smart ass kind of questions. People on Twitter, mean tweets, if you will. These people just they won't let it go. Thanks, Randy. I'm I'll glad. see you around soon. Thanks. <laughs> Mysterio Jr. and Eddie Guerrero uh get a win over David Taylor and Chris Adams in six and a half minutes. Um pretty fun deal here. I'm a fan of these guys. I've always been a Ray and Eddie fan. And to see a, uh, a Frankensteiner off the top rope and then a frog splash, pretty cool finish. Uh, and then Kurt Henning comes out to their new song and says they're going to be in concert. Chat me up about this segment, the match, what you thought of it all this time later. I thought the segment was pretty good. I mean, Ray and Eddie could have a great match with just about anybody. Um, and that's not taking anything away, um, from, from, uh, Dave. Or, or anybody else, but it, it was a pretty exciting match. 
you know, don't really have a lot more to say about it, to be honest with you. I, it, it, it served its purpose and it served it well. We get an introduction for Chad Brock. Uh, what do you think of this when you watched it live? Oh, God, Chad Brock. You know, I still hear his name to this day occasionally. You know, out here in Wyoming, you'll hear, you know, coming up in concert in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. Chad, recording artist, Chad Brock. And Chad was a great guy. Um, he had a record deal with Warner Brothers. He was living in Nashville. He was a singer-songwriter. And he was a tank. I mean, he was probably only about 5'9 or 5'10. But he was like, he had to weigh 240. And, you know, and he wasn't jacked up, ripped up, gassed up, you know, kind of a bodybuilder type. He was just a naturally big country boy and he loved wrestling and he had a great voice and i was introduced to him early on in his career when it looked like he was really going to go places and he and he did for a short period of time <clears throat> excuse me you know after this period in wcw but he was really chad was really committed and he wanted to be he wanted to be that country music star that was also a professional wrestler he really, really did. He saw himself as that. And I met with his management in Nashville. We talked through that and they were going to support it. And again, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, the idea was, well, wait a minute, we've got a, you know, a Warner Brothers record label who back in that time, record labels were really spending a lot of money to market their talent. So from a business perspective, to have a piece of talent that a record label was going to spend money on promoting and probably, you know, getting access for, for Chad and WCW in an environment that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get near, um, whether it's country music stations and interviews or, you know, the Nashville network at the time or whatever, you know, from a business point of view, it kind of made sense. Well, it was not fun to watch here. Next up, we've got Kidman and Disco and Fur. We may, we may have rushed the process just a little bit. I think he had a song coming out. We wanted to try to just collapse the cycle. It's hilarious. Uh, Vampiro and ICP come out. They attack Kidman and, uh, well, it's a big schmoz. Mysterio tries to get Disco to shake his hand. Uh, Disco sticks his hand out. Mysterio goes to hug him and Disco walks off. So the idea here, according to Dave Meltzer, is that Kidman, Guerrero, Mysterio, Conan, and Disco are now going to be the filthy animals. And allegedly it's been bounced around as an idea for weeks, but Kevin Nash keeps nixing it, but they keep pressing. Um, chat me up about the creation of the filthy animals and how it came to be. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it was, you know, is the extension of the whole Raven thing, you know, the insane clown posse thing, the, the darker grungier kind of antisocial vibe that was popular at that time, especially amongst this group. Um, it was something that they all really believed in. And, you know, as you lay this out to me and as I saw it, it's kind of like, you know, they, they could have almost had me if, if disco wasn't a part of it. I, it was one of the things that stood out to me then, and it stood out to me watching it now. You know, Disco was a great – and I have a lot of respect for Disco. I don't want anybody to think <clears throat> for a moment 
that I didn't think he was a, a, a really a tremendously talented guy. He never really found his niche, and he was probably put into situations that he shouldn't have been. But, you know, athletically, he was great. He embraced his characters. Um, but I think if he would have stayed in that comedy space instead of in this dark grunge, you know, pre-hepatitis phase, um, I think he'd have been better off. Pre-hepatitis. Wow. That's the line of the day. So let's talk about uh, what's next on the show here. Bagwell beats Scott Norton by DQ. In the course of the match here, Sonny Ono um, comes down and uh, Ernest Miller's here. Ernest Miller with the red shoe. Chat me up. It feels like Ernest Miller is the highlight of a lot of the nitros in this era. And a lot of people say that he was getting extreme favoritism from you. How would you respond to that? Yeah, he was, because I thought he was a great character, and he was new, and he was fresh, and he wasn't the same old thing that we'd been seeing for five or six years. And I, I believed in him. <clears throat> I think Ernest Miller, then and now, probably has more charisma, natural charisma, in his little finger than three-quarters of the half of the guys that were on the roster at the time. We, you know, he, he came along late in the game. You know, first of all, he was a little older when he, when he got into the business. Um, it, had he gotten into the business when he was 25, two year, I mean, sorry? seriously, if he was 25, how big of a star would Ernest Miller have been? I think he could have been one of the top stars in WCW. He had the ability. He really, really did. He, he had the physical ability. <clears throat> he, he was wired for it psychologically. He understood it was a work. He was he wasn't so concerned about his character that he wasn't willing and able to try something different. Let me tell you something. When I recruited Ernest, he was my son's karate instructor, and I got to know him, Garrett, in Atlanta. That's all I got to know, Ernest. And then I went and I worked out with him a few times, and we became friends. And I remember taking him out to lunch. And saying, Ernest, because I, I saw him from New Japan. He was a very athletic guy. You know, he, he played in the NFL, for crying out loud. <clears throat> he was a legitimately great kickboxer, legitimately. And for a guy as big as he was, he could move so fast. But that th wasn't the reasons why I was excited about him. He had such a great personality and so much charisma. It took me... I think it took me two or three months to convince him to come into WCW. He was, he didn't want to do it at first. I had to talk him into it. And the only way I was able to talk him into it is I knew that I could really get him an inroad in, into Japan because I knew he could handle a Japanese style without a lot of experience. You've got to be able to go in there at that time. You had to be able to just go in there and bang. And I knew he could do it. I knew he could learn what he needed to learn, and he could do well in Japan. And I knew Brad Ringens would be supportive of it, as and, and Masa Saito. So that's how I got him in. But once he got in, he absolutely loved it. He took to it like a fish to water. And he's really underrated as a character. And he just, like I said, he came he came along at the wrong time. Yeah, I totally agree with your assessment there. Because one of the things I've always appreciated about Ernest is. And I don't know how he could do this, but his facial expressions, maybe some of the best in the business. He could say so much by saying so little, 
you know, he didn't have to put a ton of thought into his promo, not to say that they weren't entertaining, but his delivery is what made it. I mean, he could deliver. I mean, if, if he was to have a podcast, it would have to be video because then everything he said would be gold. Would it not? It would. And he, here's the other thing about Ernest is he, he was a guy that you, you didn't have to tell him anything. You know, if, if he had a two minute promo, he knew what, who his opponent was. He knew when the match was coming up, he was so entertaining. He could improv anything in any situation half the shit that he came up with he improved nobody gave it to him no no he came up with his own stuff and to this day you know when i see him we still see each other a couple times a year i talk to him on the phone pretty regularly and he still he cracks me up he's just a funny entertaining guy but like I said, he had the improbability. He saw himself as a character. He didn't take himself so seriously that, you know, he got caught up in his own bullshit like so many people do. Um, he was like, ah, can't say enough good things about Ernest. Let's keep it rolling here. Next up, we've got um, the Chad Brock song. Uh, you guys lost 355,000 viewers when Chad Brock sang. Uh, Kurt Henning comes out, then the revolution comes out to save Brock. And it was mentioned that Brock had wrestled before and thankfully we're out of there. And now it's Canyon and Booker T, uh, Bigelow and page are going to come in and attack Stevie Ray at ringside. And then Canyon gets a belt and hits T with it and then pins him with a flatliner. And Meltzer would say that Canyon's only working five days a month, which is the nitros and pay-per-views because he's been moved to Los Angeles for three months to work on the wrestling choreography for the new WCW movie. Uh, chat me up about ready to rumble and how important to that process Canyon was. He was important. You know, Canyon was, I mean, physically in the ring, Canyon was amazing. I mean, he could invent shit on the fly as, as great as, you know, Ernest Miller was in the improving, you know, in the ring, you know, with a microphone Canyon was equally as impressive, if not more so, just improving moves and just f- fascinating things that he could do in the ring, uh, which was one one great quality that he had. The other great quality that he had is he was a phenomenal teacher, which is really rare because in my life, and it, not just in wrestling, but you know whether it's martial arts or whether it's you know teaching science or whatever it is, there are a lot of people who are good at something. They have a skill that they're great at, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can teach it. In fact, most of the time they can't. And there are teachers out there who are probably, you know, their hearts are in the right place, you know, and they want to be teachers, but they're just, eh, they don't really have the skills. Canyon was one of those guys who not only had the physical skills and ability that would just amaze you with some of the shit that he would come up with, but he was even more than that. He was a great teacher. He really knew how to communicate to somebody who was green. You know, we worked with him with Jay Leno. You know, he was instrumental in that. You know, it's not like, you know, before this movie came along, nobody really realized how good he was at teaching. He really, really was. So when the movie came about, um, it was imperative that we had somebody on the set because I wanted the wrestling to be real. I wanted it to be as legit as it could possibly be, especially if stunt people were doing it and actors were doing it. It was really imperative that if WCW was at the center of it all, I wanted the wrestling to be as real and authentic and organic as it could possibly be. 
Let's talk about what's next. It's Dennis Rodman coming out here. Meltzer would write, the guy has amazing presence and charisma. Unfortunately, he has no brain. He says he loves being in Idaho and see, despite his clever remarks, he's supposed to be the face here. And because of his clever remarks, the people stood up to see him, but they didn't cheer for him. And Meltzer would write, Rodman looks like he's about 195 pounds. And it's also funny that Rodman is 6'6", but looks so much taller than wrestlers like Hulk Hogan, who claimed to be 6'8". Anyway, he called gorgeous George his bitch. And as you can imagine, the fans booed that. Gene took his mic away and wouldn't let him talk. Savage came out and Rodman ran away. And somebody needs to explain to Rodman that an African-American face in front of a 100% white crowd doesn't brag about scoring with a white girl. And even more that the face doesn't run from the heel boy was this lame. So chat me up here. This doesn't feel like something WCW would have ever scripted given all the standards and practices. What do you remember about the promo here? Yeah, it was a disaster. You know, look, I, Dennis is a great dude. And when his head is right, there's nobody better. Um, you know, as far as being a non wrestler, a celebrity in the business, but at that point in his life before he got clean, he was a wreck and he'd have moments of lucidity (laughs) and he was easy to deal with and he got it. You know, when his head was clear, you could lay something out to him one time, just one time. You could lay out an entire match to him one time, maybe walk through it once. And that was it. He had it. He had an amazing gift in many respects. But the other 90% of the time, he was a wreck, and he was really hard to manage. I'm sure Phil Jackson had this, would say some of the same things to you if you were talking to him about you know, Dennis Rodman when he was playing for the Bulls. He was a really, really difficult guy to manage, and this was a perfect manifestation of that. Well, let's talk about what's next. We've got um... – I guess before we talk about that, we should mention what Wade Keller wrote here. He says Nitro producer Annette Yothers is becoming less and less popular amongst the wrestlers. At Nitro, a group of about 10 wrestlers went to the production truck to watch Chris Jericho's debut on Raw on a monitor. And Yothers upset the wrestlers when she rudely refused to let them turn the volume up on the monitor. It's interesting to me that this shit even gets reported. Do you remember hearing that maybe Annette Yothers had a little heat with some of the guys? Annette was tough. You know, again, she's, she was a woman in a very tough job and she had to manage a lot of tough guys, belligerent guys, guys who were disrespectful, um, guys who were very strong willed and opinionated. Oftentimes guys who were really pissed off because things weren't going their way. She was in a horrible position and she worked her guts out. Um, and she, yeah, she got a lot of heat because she had to, you know, her job was to make sure shit got done. Her job was to make sure people were where they needed to be when they needed to be there. She had, again, you know, talk about thankless jobs. Her, her role as a producer was probably one of the most thankless uh, on the production team uh, because she had all the responsibility and no real authority. So I'm sure she did get some heat from some people some of the time, but there were also a lot of people that had a lot of respect for. Well, let's talk about why we're really here, man. Um, Hogan and sting and Goldberg are going to be Kevin Nash, Sid vicious and Scott Steiner or Rick Steiner rather 
In eight minutes and eight seconds, when Hogan cleaned house on everyone and allowed Sting to beat Nash with the Scorpion Deathlock, with referee Johnny Boone being beaten up and Scott Dickinson hears a submission. Meltzberg right. Hogan was over like crazy and totally overshadowed both Goldberg and Sting, and the match was set up to make sure that would happen. Goldberg on the apron, whose pops are way down since they gave him the new entrance music, almost looked in awe of Hogan's response. Of course, this is the epitome of the nostalgia pop. Hulk Hogan back in the red and yellow. What do you remember about this? It was good and it was bad. You know, again, once again, you know, in, in Dave's writing and recaps of this, you know, he has to imply that, you know, there was some, you know, nefarious intent on Hulk Hogan's part to make sure that he overshadowed Bill Goldberg. And it wasn't true. The reason Bill Goldberg got the amount of money that he was able to get in his contract and renegotiation that we talked about early on here was because Hulk Hogan got Henry Holmes wouldn't have been Bill Goldberg's attorney had Hulk not set it up. That was all Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan believed in Bill Goldberg. He wasn't trying to overshadow him despite what, you know, Dave Meltzer felt the need to, to frame in, in that report. That being said, of course they're going to react, you know, you know, Hulk Hogan's back in the red and yellow. You're going to get that nostalgia pop. That was a good observation on Dave's part. But there, there was no, like I said, malintent uh, associated with it. It just was what it was. Um, and it painted us into a corner with Hulk. He wasn't, there was no going back from that point. Not that it would make any sense anyway. Let me ask you this. Um, it was written by in The Observer. Bischoff wanted Hogan to turn back heel this past week, saying the face turn hadn't worked and was pointing to the ratings. Hogan doing the red and yellow on Monday was his step in trying to prove Bischoff wrong because he didn't want to turn back so quickly. At one point, Bischoff wanted to book a heel Hogan beating Bret Hart for the main event on the 823 Nitro in Las Vegas rather than saving it for the fall brawl pay-per-view as was originally planned. That seems to have fallen apart, although Hart is said to be training like crazy for his comeback recognizing he still has a lot to prove to everyone, but there's no definite time or even program for him anymore. Before you respond, Wade Keller would also write Hollywood Hogan TV matches continue to be relatively flat in the ratings. So therefore he's apparently considering turning heel again or retiring the return of the red and yellow outfit may be a final grasp, at trying to get over as a baby face, or it might be a final step towards being as wholesome as possible before a shocking heel turn. Bischoff wants Hogan to turn heel again, but apparently Hogan is against it. Instead, Hogan is insisting to people that his final transformation is happening right now, right before retiring. And it'll either be Saturday's pay-per-view or by the end of the year, after one final run with a feud with Bret Hart, Bret Hart's return had been planned for the August 23rd nitro in Las Vegas. Although he hasn't agreed to that return as of yet, as far as Hogan's claims that he's retiring, nobody believes him. But he is saying he's retiring with a straight face. His hyperextended knee will likely lead to a stretch of recovery time where he doesn't necessarily wrestle, but he is going to at least wrestle Saturday on pay-per-view. If he doesn't take any extra time off or retire, a feud with Brett is next. But since there's no way to portray Brett as anything but a baby face, at least initially, that could be one reason to turn Hogan heel. Otherwise, they'll have to be creative and find a baby face versus baby face series that captures the viewer's interest. 
So there you go. You've got a Meltzer take and a Keller take that are a little different, but not that different. There seems to be a consensus here that you think Hogan should be a bad guy and he's not sold on it, brother. What say you? It's absolutely wrong. You know, and, and I'll, I'll start with the early part of Meltzer's nonsense first. The, the fact, first of all, once Hulk Hogan turned babyface, there was no going back heel next week or week, the week after or the week after that. Never in my worst decision-making process or creative moment, even in 19-fucking-99, would I have thought that was a good idea. So just flat out no, period. Number number two, the other flaw in, in Dave's wild-ass fucking guess and creative writing is that I would make a decision like that based on a week or two of ratings. I never made decision on quarter hour ratings. I looked at trends over quarter hours. I would compare them to other quarter hours and try to come up with trends over a long period of time. But I never understood why anybody would look at quarter hour ratings and make a fucking decision or a choice, or have too strong of an impression. Worse yet were the jackasses that were looking at minute-by-minute ratings, believe it or not, because they used to supply those to us too, which was even more ludicrous. I really understood at the very beginning of the Nitro process how fucking flawed the Nielsen rating methodology really was. I had meetings with people from Nielsen who would come in from Chicago where they were based and try to explain it to me, and they were confused themselves. It, it, it's, it's, they're an indicator. It's, it's like one of seven or eight different things that I, I relied upon to, to make choices. So the fact that Dave Meltzer would suggest that, oh, based on a rating last week, Eric Bischoff wants to turn him back heel is so asinine and in, in wrong that I'm tired of talking about it already. In, in terms of, you know, Keller talking about, you know, is Hogan really want to retire? Does he not want to retire? I went through, I went through that with him on a regular basis. Keep in mind, Hulk Hogan had retired from the WWF and was doing movies and TV shows when I hired him. The only reason he came back to WCW was because it was on a very, very limited schedule and he still had it in his blood. He missed it to a degree, not to a large degree, but to a degree. But by 1999, it was not fun anymore. Not for him, not for me, not for Nash, not for Hall. Maybe the filthy animals were having a blast. I don't fucking know. But the majority of the people on the roster were not that happy, including Hulk. And he didn't need the money. At that time, Hulk probably had, you know, somewhere between fifty and hundred million dollars in the bank. In the bank. And he had no debt. So it, it wasn't like he needed the bread, despite what everybody wanted you to believe and read. And it was he was doing it more for the fun and the passion and the enjoyment of it. And I went through this, you know, should I retire? Should I? I mean, on a person, in a personal conversation, not when he was working me, because it would have, there would have been no reason to. It, it just it was just two guys talking about it, and he was hurting physically. He was dealing with the fact that it was he was starting to fall apart, and he couldn't keep up. He knew the clock was ticking. So his thoughts of retirement were legitimate, whether he was kidding himself or not. 
from time to time. That's debatable because he, he would say, uh, you know, is he, I guarantee you to this day, if I were to pick up the phone and, and put you on hold and say, Hulk, believe it or not, Vince McMahon just gave me a call because he knows you and I are friends. And he's just curious what I thought in terms of, you know, you being interested in getting back in the ring. Now, I know what the answer should be, but I know what the answer would be. <laughs> and they're two different things. You know, he, he loves it so much, and he did back then, that he, he was wrestling, no pun intended, with the to retire or not retire. And the fact that he didn't need the bread only made that decision a little bit tougher sometimes. Well, let's talk about how it did, man. Um, Hogan's return, red and yellow, August 9th, 1999. Raw does a 6.36 rating. Nitro does a 3.11. Over the head-to-head two hours and six minutes, Raw wound up at a 6.32. Nitro wound up at a 2.85. The specific Hulk Hogan match did a 3.11 in the final quarter hour, but it drew a 4.4 in the overrun. So it did work, but not nearly the way a lot of people may have hoped. And we hope that you enjoyed what we did here as we took a deep dive on all things WCW 1999. This was one of our more enjoyable episodes to me, Eric. I appreciate all the sidebars that we had today, and I'm looking forward to doing more. He is at E. Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.